Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Coborn. Morning, Mom. (laughs) Hi. Another nice day. How are the lilies doing out front today? Oh, 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 beautiful. Oh, gosh, they're so beautiful. (laughs) So, Caroline, do you want to introduce our guest today? Yes, proud to do that. Uh, the, The book is Troublemaker. And it's a memoir of, of sexism, retaliation, and the fight they don't see coming, and that's for sure. Now, Lisa Cornwell is our author, and she spent seven years as an on-air host and reporter for Golf Channel, establishing herself as a respected voice in the game. Prior to Golf Channel, she worked in similar roles for the Big Ten Network, as well as at local affiliates in Mississippi, Tennessee, and Ohio. She herself is a four-time Arkansas well, Women's State Golf Champion, a two-time AJGA first-time All-American, and a two-time All-State Basketball Player. Oh, gosh. So very, very, very accomplished athlete, and uh, we're very happy to be able to uh, interview her about this book. Good morning. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Good Lisa. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. So did you, uh, you know, growing up, your your focus was on sports. Did you ever think you'd be a, writing a book? Uh, no, I did not. It's, um, it's, uh, no, that was never in my um, wildest dreams or imagination whatsoever. The interesting part, though, if you look at the book, there's actually when I do the dedication, my mom is the first person I dedicate it to. And given my sort of life experiences from the point when I was at probably around my mid to late twenties, she kept saying, Lisa, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. I don't think she ever meant this kind of book, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, But no, like I've been, I've been very blessed with, with a wonderful life, a great family, good health, and, you know, some good stories to tell in the book aside from what happened at Golf Channel. So it really it's it's been cathartic in many ways. Um, I doubt that I'll ever write another one. It's very difficult. I have the utmost respect for people who do this regularly, but it's it's certainly been um, it's been an eye opening experience. And I'm very grateful to have had. <laughs> now, did you like what did you major in in college? I was actually pre law, and that was because I'd gone through this whole burnout from golf. And all I wanted to do when I was a kid was be a professional golfer. And I think that that's all anyone expected me to do. And when that desire went away, I was really lost. And you know, I, I always knew that I I liked to to get in the mix, to get in the ring, so to speak. And um, I wasn't afraid to tackle some of these issues, whatever they may be. And I thought, well, I should be perfectly suited for the legal profession. Uh, I had a lot of lawyers in my family. And so I ended up with a pre-law major in sociology and anthropology. I'm not sure how that fell under pre-law, but I guess, you know, <laughs> dealing, dealing with societies and uh, it's a very thorough degree. So after I, after I graduated, I realized that I did not want to be a lawyer and, mm. and kept searching. And it took me several years before I found this crazy business. As a, a sports journalist, basically, right? Correct. Yes. Correct. And is that, do you see yourself continuing in that business in the future? I'm in it now. So I've been really fortunate. You know, when I spoke out against Golf Channel and NBC, I did it with the knowledge that probably nobody else in in media would ever want to hire me again. I knew that 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 was part of the risk that I would take in, for lack of a better word, being a whistleblower. But I've been fortunate that PGA Tour Entertainment, I've known those folks for years. Um, They they know the kind of person I am and – they didn't. They they didn't doubt any anything in the book. Nothing nothing that I did in terms of being outspoken bothered them. And so I've been working for them the last the last few years. And I, I tell you, I, I even acknowledged them in the in the book because they're living proof that in this sort of male dominated environment. I mean, there are a lot of women who work at PGA Tour Entertainment, but it's still more male dominated. But you can still have fairness and equality if you have the right people running the show. And so it's been. It's been such a, a wonderful experience on the heels of what I experienced at Golf Channel that 
was the exact opposite. You know, there was a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling, a lot of egos, a lot of tempers. And PGA Tour Entertainment, they don't put up with it. I mean, they would rather sacrifice the product a little bit to create a good working environment. And so it's just, it's really been a blessing for me. I'm very grateful for that. That's, I'm glad to hear that because I didn't, did you say that in the book that you got hired by them? Because I don't remember reading it's that. in the acknowledgement it's in the yeah, acknowledgement okay okay mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah so you do have a happy ending <laughs> I do well look I think that I would have had a happy ending even without that now it did make it better because I do love this business and worked hard to be in it but um I have a happy ending for a lot of reasons not just finding that avenue in this business that I can still stay connected to the game of golf on the broadcast side but I sleep better at night. I tell people I make one fourth of the money that I used to make, but I, my life is so much better. I don't wake up every day wondering what battle I'm going to fight, what fire I'm going to have to put out at work. And it just, the politics have, they've gone away for me. And when I'm at work, it's just work. And people, you know, I get to work with are, are pleasant and respectful and it's just a, a great environment to be in. Wow. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Now, when you, you wrote this book after having filed a, an EEOC or a couple of EEOC complaints against um, Golf Channel, and um, can you just talk a little bit about what motivated you to do that and how, you know, some of the other women that that uh, joined you in that kind of um, trying to make a difference at the Golf Channel? And do you think anything changed? So I didn't know how the process worked. And thankfully, one of, one of my best friends, closest people in my life is, is my cousin. And she's a lawyer, although she's a tax attorney. So she doesn't have a lot of experience in this field. However, she does know a lot of people who are employment lawyers and so I learned through her that the avenue that you have to go especially the way that my contract's written you have to go through the EEOC so once I found out that I was being demoted and this is what a lot of people didn't know they when when I put out this tweet on January 1 about what had happened saying that it was the first day I was no longer in contract with Golf Channel and was free to speak my mind what people didn't know was that for the past nine months, or really the past year, I had been doing something about it. So while I was still employed, even before I was demoted, I filed a charge or filed an HR complaint. So I went through that process. Once once I officially got demoted, that's when the first charge was filed for the demotion. The second EEOC charge was filed after the non-renewal of my contract. And you know, I outlined this whole process with the EEOC. Unfortunately, too, it happened during COVID. So a lot of things were going on. There were delays. The investigator who worked my case for two and a half years got reassigned. Um, so it was really, to be quite honest, an absolute mess. I mean, the EEOC, they're there to serve a purpose. You know, you think about these big discrimination cases that you hear about. The woman at Pinterest is the first one who comes to mind. She was in a C-suite office. She was a COO. So you're talking about a woman with a a seven-figure income. She can afford to take on these battles, hire the best lawyers, and and go to work and get what she needs to do through the legal system. I was not in that situation, although I was in a better situation than somebody, let's say, makes $30,000 or $50,000. The EEOC is supposed to be there to provide legal protection and funding for these cases that they deem to be valid. Now, unfortunately, the EEOC is so underfunded and understaffed that they only take on 5 to 10% of the cases that get put in front of them. So all of that being said, um, you know, there were, there were a multitude of things that I dealt with during my time at Golf Channel. But once I started seeing assignments being taken away, especially assignments that I've always had. And then I detail the one specifically in Arkansas when the NCAA championships were held there. And that's where I played college golf. I had just been inducted into the Hall of Fame. It was in my hometown. 
I wrote the letter on the university's behalf to get the NCAAs in Fayetteville, and that was my first official demotion. So they were they were sending a clear signal that this was happening. And from that moment on, I thought, you know what, I'm not going to let them do this. They, if, if they want to, if they want to do this to somebody, and I'm sure that they've done it countless times throughout the history of the network, and we do have evidence of some of it, um, I was going to be the person who was publicly going to take them on. And I didn't care. I didn't care what it took. I didn't care the hits that it, that it posed to me professionally. I didn't care about any personal attacks. I was just dead set on getting this out there and trying to make things better because in this day and age, you should not be able to do the things that they did and get away with it. And I, I wanted to take it on. And we started simply with the EEOC first charge that we filed. Wow. So in the long run, do you think you, it made a difference there? I don't know. That's a great question. Um, a lot of the same perpetrators are still there and they're still running the show. I mean, I write extensively about the woman who hired me, Molly Solomon. And this is really, I think, the unfortunate part of the story because so many women dealt with this. It, w it wasn't just me. And we had a female boss who could have fixed all of it. She could have, she could have gotten the bad apples out of there and put some real provisions in place to say, look, if this stuff happens, you will pay a penalty. But again, like the story that I wrote about with another woman who was in her in her mid-20s and had a veteran male employee, and I'm talking a guy, a man who has a lot of power at the network, literally told this young woman who was like a little sister to me, he cussed her out, and I heard one of the voicemails, and it was it was horrible, and then topped it off with any trained monkey could do your job. Now, first of all, that's not even in my vocabulary. Like, I had to think about how in the world would somebody come up with those words to say to another person? But the problem was Molly Solomon, who was made directly aware of this, not only by the employee, but by the employee's direct supervisor and HR, she wasn't even going to make this man apologize. He was on air within an hour of, of doing this. And it took three days to finally convince her to make him apologize. She's still in the same position that she held. So, you know, look, I can't believe that a lot of these things have been brought to the network and more changes haven't been made. It just, it just goes to show you how protected, and I can't speak for every network, but how protected people are at NBC. If you've been there for a long time, there are walls around you that people can't seem to penetrate. And of course, other parts of NBC, some of those things have come to light and, and, you know, the, and people have been able to call, hold some of those people accountable. Well, and it's taken a while. Look it's at, taken look at a long, long time. For this yeah. Matt Lauer. Yeah. Look at how long it took for the Matt Lauer. And they, you know, they spent tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to show what he did under the rug. Look oh, at the yeah. whole Chris Matthews story. You know, I mean, it, it, there's a long list of, of perpetrators. And sure, in the media as a whole, but NBC has a lot of stains on it. And I would say that a lot of those folks are still in place. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't, I mean, it, it doesn't make sense in a way why people would do that except that I mean, like the, like the guy who, I mean, you call out names in this book. You're, you're not holding anything back. And there really is one analyst who is seems to be at the root of a lot of the issues that you had. Why would they want to protect him? Why would they, was he that popular with viewers? There, so, I mean, the simple answer is I don't know. I, I mean, everyone who I know who, who's worked closely with them at, one time or another has had a significant problem with him. Now, he's one of those people on air who, who likes to stir up controversy. And I don't know if in this day and age, if they like that, if that is something that they think brings in ratings, but at what extent, you know, I mean, I, I pointed out very clearly about not just my issues. I mean, you can take my issues aside, you know, it, it, 
then throw those out the window. If they don't believe that or don't think that that holds water, but, you know, I clearly tell a story in the book about how while he was at work that he was having a who has the best breast contest on the LPGA tour with another with another on-air personality in front of some coworkers who told me about this. And I specifically said, this is exactly why I've been very outspoken on Brandel Chambly not ever being an analyst for women's golf events, especially the LPGA tour. Last week at Pebble Beach, he was the lead analyst on site. And it absolutely drives me crazy. I I mean, if I was running the network and I heard that, I would do some, some really deep investigative work because I would care about that. I would, you know, if I worked for the LPGA tour and I'm running it and I'm the commissioner, I would have some serious inquiries to protect my players because it's, it's absurd. It should never happen, but it just goes to show. I don't know if people don't care or they just don't want to, they, they don't want to go there. I, I don't know. It, it, it's absolutely baffling to me. Well, I found interesting that, and, and I hope you did too, that so many women spoke out and contacted you and, and told you that they supported, you know, supported you. And I thought that was, that must have made you feel really empowered by that. It did. It did. And, and so many of them, like I will say, there was, there was a group of them who were very fearful. They were even fearful to talk to me at first um, out of concern yeah. that it might get back to, it might get back to somebody else who possibly could either affect their job in the future or if they were talking about it would violate their NDA. I mean, mm-hmm. that was a big concern for a lot of women because you know, they do what corporations do when they know that there have been misdeeds. They get you to sign a document. They give you a check. They say, we'll, we'll give you health insurance and benefits for X amount of time. And you're basically their prisoner when you do that. You, you can't yeah. do anything to counteract what's happened. So many of those women who spoke had to speak on the condition of, of anonymity because they couldn't violate that NDA. The others just were afraid of of not ever being employed in the future or what it might do for their careers or what it might make them look like. They didn't want to be the whistleblower. So look, it's, mm-hmm. it's been a difficult, as great as it has been to have their support, it's been hard too because, yes, you know, when you see people afraid to take on these battles of, of wrong, of clear wrongdoing, you feel like that it only perpetuates it. So what I'm trying to do is, in some way, shape, or form, give give these people strength to say, look, you know, there are risks involved. Retaliation is definitely real, but living in fear is not the way to live. It's not worth it. You know, your story is way too important to let these things rule you. Now, I get the NBA part. I mean, you know, you, you can't risk your financial security. That part I do understand, but everything else to me is just, it's heartbreaking. Now, um, you kind of went public with this in a couple of years ago now with the Washington yes. Post article. And you first you went on a podcast and then you um, had – there was a journalist who wrote an article for the Washington Post that talked about your story and many of the other women's stories – and now, and now, this book came out. When did it get, come out? When was it released? May twenty third. So May twenty third, Troublemaker. What kind of uh, response have you gotten from going public with this? I will say most of the response has been very positive. Um, there will always be, of course, especially in this day and age of, of social media. There will be people who attack you. They, you know, they've said I'm a bitter employee. Um, no wonder I got fired. You know, all of these different, whatever the accusatory language that comes with it. But 90 to 95 percent of the response has been very positive, and I will say equally for men as well as women. You know, women, women get it. Women have lived through it. I don't. I haven't met a woman yet who doesn't understand that this stuff still goes on, but men respond in a different way, almost like in this protective, how can people still do this? 
and they want to make it better. I mean, I will say in this day and age, people have gotten better. They want society to be better. They want equality for the most part, but you still have this small group of people. They don't care. And those are the people who, who we have to, I don't know, reach in some way. I always wonder, you know, what, what women could do more, you know, there is this sort of queen bee scenario that does exist with women that, you know, they're not going to be there and support you and have your back. Most women will, but the brotherhood that exists versus the sisterhood that exists, it's completely different. And I can tell you from my experience, the brotherhood is so much stronger. It it just is, unfortunately. And I think that that's the area that we as women have to figure out if we really want these issues to get better. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Lisa Cornwell, author of Troublemaker. Now, you had a co-author on your book, Tucker Booth. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you worked with him? Yeah, so Tucker had become like a pseudo-brother to me. When all of this started happening and I finally figured out that I wanted to write a book, I knew that I could tell my story in terms of my past and some of the things that I went through. I knew once I got to the legal side that the storytelling aspect would have to be really strong. I knew that I knew that that wasn't my strength. I mean, I can write the the black and white bullet points and I did write a lot of the book. It was probably 50/50. But when I decided that I wanted to do this, I knew that I needed some help and Tucker actually invited me to come on his podcast. And so like I did with anybody, especially at that point, because I was very sensitive to who I would tell my story to, I did some research on him. And as I was researching, I came across this profile piece that he wrote on a man named Michael Whalen, who had battled uh, some mental disorders. He was actually the first executive producer of Golf Channel when it started way back in the day. And so I was intrigued to read the article, but then once I was in there and reading the article, Tucker's way of, of telling his story just spoke to me. And so when I reached back out to him and said, I'll do this podcast, and oh, by the way, do you do professional writing? And he was working on his first book, and he told me it was something that he really wanted to do, that he had this great passion for writing. And so it piqued my interest because, number one, I knew that I couldn't afford a seasoned ghostwriter and Tucker wanting to get in it. I thought, okay, we can work together. Let's see how this goes. And, you know, we just had a lot of conversations. He talks in the book about fully vetting me, which I wanted him to do. I wanted him to know that, you know, that I was credible, that my story was credible. And most of all, just that I'm a respectable person who, who cares about how people are treated. And I'm thankful that he put that in his afterword because I think that it really tells the full story of that. But yeah, he's, he's, he's become like a brother to me. He knows more of my life story probably than anyone (laughs) because we spent so much time on the phone, but it was, he couldn't have been more perfect um, for this task that we had ahead of us. So were there certain like chapters that you wrote and then other chapters that he wrote, or did you like send each other, you'd write something, send it to him, he'd work on that, send it back. How, how did that process work for you? It was kind of a hodgepodge. And, you know, when we got the, the offer from, from Triumph, and so we originally put together this 70-page proposal to pitch to publishers. And so that did a lot of the homework and and we worked together and he honestly, he did most of the writing for the proposal. But once we got the offer and it was a 70,000 word manuscript in the contract and we only had six months to get it done. That was their, that was their thing. I said, look, (laughs) I know. And, and I, Tucker and I had several phone calls and I said, look, Tucker, if we sign this contract, we have to get it done. I mean, I've never been late on a single bill payment in my life. I'm not going to be late on a on a something contractual. And he said, okay, let's do it. And so I told him, I said, look, I'll get in there and, and I'll start writing too. What I didn't realize is the amount of my story that I would want to tell in this book. And I started thinking about sort of my personality, like the chapter on the three iron. And I just started I started thinking about that and going back and telling the story about Tiger Woods and Bill Clinton, all these people who have 
sort of influenced me and how golf has influenced me. And I, you know, obviously I open up about having an eating disorder and, you know, realizing my sexuality and all these personal battles that I sort of fought before I had to fight this, this big corporate battle. And so I ended up, I ended up writing a lot of my own chapters. Tucker would write some chapters and send to me and I, you know, it didn't really feel like my voice. So I would do a bunch of rewrites. So the simple answer to your question is it was a total hodgepodge. We did not really have it. We did not have a system. I did tell him though, I said, because this is just how I am. I don't work very well scattered. I said, Tucker, I have to go chronologically because my mind can't handle bouncing around. So we did that. And uh, while he was working on something that I would give him, I would say, Hey, Tucker, you know, let's, let's, like the three iron chapter is pretty good. He wrote that chapter and I did a lot of rewrites on it, but we just had phone conversations. But then, you know, the chapters about my eating disorder and sort of uh, what I dealt with and in, in my divorce from golf, as I called it, I wrote those chapters. So things that I felt very connected to in terms of being able to write it and not have to flesh it out like a storyteller, I took a hold of those and just took them on my own. And then things would happen as I'm in the writing process. And I'm like, Oh wait, I need to include this. So it was just a, it was a wonderful journey back down memory lane really for me. I remembered a lot of things that I had forgotten. Mm. So it was quite the process. Oh, I bet. And you did it all in six months. Six months. Oh my gosh. I, I assumed that I assumed that you had kept a journal and, because everything is so precise and detailed, I, I couldn't imagine how you could remember all those things. I mean, that's amazing. It really is. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And to be quite honest, until I started writing, I didn't remember it. And then it's almost like you get in it and you're like, oh, wait, I, I remember that feeling of being in that room. I remember driving from Dallas. And I clearly now, I wouldn't have been able to tell you this two years ago. But now, as I wrote in the book, I clearly remember when I was leaving Dallas and I was transferring from SMU to, to Tulsa, I can still now remember looking in my rearview mirror and seeing downtown. But I didn't remember that <laughs> until I was writing. So it was really a cool process to go through. Yeah, I bet. Well, you know, the stories about, you know, before you got to the Golf Channel, like you said, your, the stories about your life, there's a lot in there because, I mean, you grew up playing golf with Tiger Woods. How many people can say that? <laughs> so yeah, how did that um, happen? Well, we both played on a national tour and, you know, we were, we were successful golfers. And so you had to be good to play on this national junior tour that we played on. And Tiger and I just hit it off. I mean, you know, we, we both like to spend a lot of time practicing and there was just something about the way that he practiced and what time he practiced that I was always around and we would end up playing practice rounds together. And I tell the story in the book about his dad and how his dad sort of became a mentor to me. I loved Colonel Woods. And, you know, one of the best parts of my job with Golf Channel was being able to reconnect with Tiger. And, um, you know, he's, I, I realized that he's had his own personal battles. But to me, he's, he's just, he's still this kid. He's still my junior golf buddy. I mean, I don't think of him as a superstar. I mean, I kind of kid with him now. I'm like, oh, you know, we can't even go out to dinner because <laughs> there would be paparazzi everywhere. But, yeah, it's, just, it's great. To, it was great to go back and sort of rehash those old memories and tell the story about his dad and the Pinecone incident and, just things that made us kids. We were just kids. He wasn't he wasn't Tiger Woods, this global superstar. He was just a skinny kid from California who liked golf as much as I did. And it's it's great to still be able to think of him that way. He's like a he's like a brother to me. I it's funny, I text him every year on his birthday and remind him that uh, there's something that I will still always be better than him at, and that's age. I always have one year on him. That's about the only thing that Wait, are you I older or younger? At. I'm older. I'm older. <laughs> <laughs> I tell him I'm always one better than him ah. in the age category. <laughs> oh, it's funny. So do you know if he's read your book? 
He has. You know what? You're the first person who's asked me that. I've done a lot of podcasts and <laughs> you're the first person who's asked me that. And he sent me, um, he sent me a text a few weeks ago. It was very sweet and unexpected. Oh. And he just said he was proud. He said he was proud of me. So oh. it, it, it meant a lot and it still does. And obviously I wrote the chapter in there about him and, and I wanted him to like it. I wanted it to mean a lot to him because he means a lot to me and his dad meant a lot to me. Mm. And I, I took a lot of care with that chapter because of that. Speaking of the chapter, uh, are you going to read something for us today? I will, if you want, it's, um, yeah. it's interesting. I'm in, I'm in the middle of reading my audio book. I have six <laughs> chapters to go. Oh, so wow. I feel like, uh, I think that the introduction is the best, the best, portion to read if that's okay with you all that sounds great mm -hmm. okay introduction and it starts with a quote we just think he's better than you mark summer senior director golf central december 2018 i wrote those words on a piece of paper the day they were said to me and have had them taped to my computer at home ever since how many women have heard comments like this from their bosses and felt unable to respond because of the person who said it. I'm usually not one to be at a loss for words, but I was that day. Even though I knew what Mark said wasn't true, it was still jarring to hear because the person who said it held all the cards and had all the power. On January 1, 2021, I finally put it out there. I'd wanted to speak publicly for a long time about the injustices, the bullying, the nepotism, the discrimination, and the lies. There was so much I needed to say for all of us. The problem was, as a public television personality, I had to abide by their rules mainly because of my contract. One wrong move, and I knew they'd come after me for violating our agreement. Here's why. In 2019, after six successful years as an on-air personality for Golf Channel, owned by Comcast NBC Universal. I was being forced out. I'd been removed from assignments and was eventually demoted from a full-time employee to a freelance reporter, despite having nothing but positive reviews and a large following of golf fans who respected my work. Their reasoning? Budget. Of course it was. It's the all-too-convenient excuse that companies give when they can't say otherwise. The real reason I was being forced out? Because I spoke up. There were way too many issues of inequality and unfair treatment to remain silent. As a result, I became a thorn in the side of many on the management team, and slowly I started noticing that my studio days were being reduced and certain assignments were being taken away. The following year, I was demoted. But instead of crawling into a corner, which I sometimes wanted to do, I decided to challenge what was very clearly a case of retaliation as you'll learn in great detail in the pages ahead. Later that year, in December 2019, I hired a lawyer named Tom Mars to represent me. Tom spent seven and a half years as Walmart's general counsel and two years running the company's HR department, so I had no doubt I was in good hands. In March 2020, we filed our first of what would eventually become two federal EEOC complaints citing several counts of discrimination and retaliation in the workplace while I still had a part-time contractual job with the company. It was career suicide. I knew it, Tom knew it, my family knew it, and at the time, writing a book about this experience wasn't even on my radar. But I was so far past the point of worrying about the aftermath and repercussions. What had happened to me and dozens and dozens of other women at the network, I would soon learn, had to be exposed. Nine months later, I was terminated. For anyone thinking this is a golf book, it isn't. Yes, there are many references to golf, because that was my job, and it's been a huge part of my life since I was a little girl. But the heart and soul of this book is addressing the real-life struggles women continue to face in the workplace. And that workplace can be in any industry, not just sports and it must change. The only way I know to stop it is to talk about it as much and as openly as we can. Now, more than two and a half years into this journey, I understand why women don't take on these battles against big corporations. They're expensive, they drag on forever, 
and they'll beat you down in a hurry. The character assassinations that Golf Channel and NBC Universal has delivered in its EEOC responses alone would be enough to make anyone question herself and her abilities. I'll admit, I've allowed it to happen from time to time. But then I go back and reread the messages I've received from former coworkers to complete strangers supporting this mission and reminding me that not only was I good at my job, but more importantly, I was fully dedicated to it, even in the end, when they continued to retaliate against me. This book in this battle is for all the women who didn't have the support or the ability to take on Goliath. I promise to spend the rest of my life helping anyone who needs an ally in this arena as much as possible. It's also for the young girls who unfortunately face this type of treatment in the workplace one day. I want them to know they're stronger than they realize and are supported by hundreds of thousands of women all around the world. Thank you, Lisa. It's Lisa Cornwell reading from Troublemaker, a memoir of sexism, retaliation, and the fight they didn't see coming. So, Lisa, in your book, you do, and you mentioned this earlier, you talk about um, having had an eating disorder. And that must have been particularly hard to write about. And I'm wondering, you know, what made you decide you needed to put that in the book? You know, actually, it was easy to read about, to write about. I oh, wanted really? to write about it. <laughs> it. It was not difficult at all. And I will say the reason is I'm not ashamed of it. The, the reason that I did not get help for so long is I was, I was ashamed and embarrassed and I felt like a failure. And what I learned through therapy was that, as I say in the book, not only was I human, but I had overcome this, this really challenging obstacle in my life. And so I'm proud of it. I'm proud of being able to say that I had an eating, eating disorder and that I went to therapy and I got better and I learned how to talk in group therapy. Like we all have issues in our lives, whether it's insomnia or an eating disorder or alcohol abuse or, you know, whatever it is, we've all been through things. And I guess that I, for some reason, there is no longer a stigma for me with having an eating disorder. And I think that it's because I realize that we all have our own demons that we have to battle. But the question is, do you really take it on the right way and learn about yourself and, and sort of let that stigma go and be okay with who you are? And I'm okay with that part of who I am. And in a way, I'm grateful that it happened because I don't think that I would have this understanding that, that life is really hard and it's okay to have stumbling blocks had I not gone through that. So it was easy to write about. And I know that, that, that may sound a little bit odd, but I was proud writing that. And, and I was thinking while I wrote it of all the young girls who may be where I was when I was going through it. And I wrote it with the intention of, I want them to be where I am one day because everybody can get there. And all you have to do is first of all, talk about it. And secondly, realize that you're not a failure. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just life. It's, it's the things that we deal with in life, and it's only gotten worse. I mean, with social media, I can't imagine what young people are going through. Oh, so it's hard. I hope it that, is so hard. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. So I hope that there's a young girl or maybe the mother of a young girl who reads that and, and thinks, you know what? It's okay. We can do this. We can get through this, and, and we'll be just fine. This is a small roadblock on our big life journey. Wow. There are several women that that uh, did reach out to you and um, seemed ready to cooperate to fight for justice, but then they dropped out, and th- that was that was not unusual behavior. You you sort of anticipated that, I imagine, didn't you? And, and most of them, I will say, did it um, in the right way. They did it in the manner of, you know, I'm, I'm very sorry. I, I just, I can't go through with this. There was one person mm-hmm. who was incredibly disappointing and sort of made me the bad person. Um, and I'll never understand her reasoning. I'll never understand. But again, that's just the 
the personality type, she almost became attacking and, and saying, I can't believe, you know, you're doing this. Why are you bringing me into it? And I told her, I said, I'm, I'm not bringing you into it. You're free to do whatever you want to do, but just, you know, just tell me, be honest. Don't, you know, it's, I want you, I want anybody to be comfortable. This is my battle. You know, this is, this is my doing, my choice. I'm not asking anybody to come along for the ride, but don't, don't go with me for a little bit and then all of a sudden make me the enemy. And I still cannot wrap, wrap my head around what happened with that one person. It was the only person it happened with. Everybody else was absolutely wonderful and gracious and, and when they decided not to do it, I, I completely understood. So, and even with this other woman, I would understand because there are risks involved. It was really just the way that she handled it that was mm. incredibly disappointing. Yeah, you were you were awfully understanding even of the journalist who you thought was going to help you and ended up getting a job on the golf channel instead. It's yeah. almost like she got bought off. She did, and I will say, I'm, I'm assuming that she's probably read the book. She has not reached out, and that's what I hate. I can't, I can't imagine things like this coming up, and and people, people know me, and they know that this happened. I can't imagine just not sending a text or or a phone call or just something saying, "Hey, look, you know, good for you for telling it. Um, hopefully, we can make things better," but doing the right thing for women I mean there have been there have been some women the small group I will say but who are just not supportive whatsoever mm. so have any of the people that that you have any of the people that you write about you know Molly her husband the analysts have they commented on the book at all no oh. no uh, they're their tactic is to pretend like it doesn't exist. But it's not surprising. That was also how they behaved with these issues that happened at Golf Channel. They wanted to pretend like they didn't exist. And that's why they didn't get better. So I fully expected them to just ignore this. Wow. Are you, do you have any concern about, you know, being sued for writing this or anything like that? No. So first of all, every story that involves Golf Channel, every story, look, there are a lot more stories I could have told, a lot more, but I had to tell them from, from the, uh, from the lens of it could all be verified. And so like, like my attorney so appropriately said when, you know, when I said what would happen if, you know, if, if they, try to file a suit or try to do something he said our response is we welcome the discovery process and it's so true because because if it went that far the amount of the amount of information extra information that would come out would be so detrimental to all the parties involved I wish that I could have told some of those other stories but that's where I had to be careful I told everything that I that I knew I they had no recourse mm. Okay, that's that's good to know. That is good to know. Um, why don't you share a little bit about the kind of the final straw with the uh, company that wouldn't provide um, equipment to one of the top female players? Yeah, so that's um, that's chapter one, the call, and then it continues with chapter twenty nine, I believe that's called fruit basket. <laughs> I mean, once you read the, once you read the chapters, you'll understand why it's called fruit basket. But the, the, the gist of the story is that Mizuno, which is a golf club manufacturer, one of the major ones here in the U S the tour rep basically denied an LPGA player irons before a major. And she was she wasn't under contract with them, so she's not a sponsored player. However, it's a very common request in professional golf that if if somebody wants to switch to their irons, they're not looking for a financial agreement. They just want to play the clubs, and it's a good way for the company to promote. Hey, we have X number of players using our equipment in this major championship. Well, she's a Chinese woman, and so I mean, when you talk about discrimination, you also have to bring xenophobia in if you're 
if you're an Asian woman or a different nationality. So she she had two strikes against her. I'm sure it's like what a lot of black women feel in this country. You know, I can't imagine being a black woman having to deal with race and sex. So mm-hmm. he denied her the equipment. And then the first day of the tournament, so she went out basically and bought the clubs on her own, still used them because they were working so well for her. But it became this big issue between her coach and her club fitter. They were really furious. And this guy basically just blew them off. And you're talking about a, a top-ranked LPGA player. So the first day of the tournament, I'm out there covering it. I know the whole story because I played golf with her the week prior. She couldn't wait to tell us the story about how awful they had been to her. So she was leaving at one point. She finished the round, and she was, like, in second or third place. And I told my producer, I didn't tell her the story because she wouldn't have let me do it. But I told my producer that I had a story about an equipment change issue that, that I wanted to talk to Janet about. You know, we could talk about her day, but also this big change. And so I knew what I was doing. I wanted to make it very publicly known that Mizuno had, had snubbed her and snubbed her in a big way that would never, ever, ever happen in men's golf, ever. This would never happen. And so I just made the statement and, and said, I bet the Mizuno tour rep who made you pay for your own golf equipment is regretting that decision right now. Because they could have said, you know, our, our equipment is on the front page of the leaderboard. I mean, it was, you know, a big deal, especially in this day and age of social media. <clears throat> this was after, mind you, I had already filed my first charge of discrimination and retaliation with the EEOC. Well, my day-to-day boss, and this is where things with my book get really odd because nepotism was also at play. So my, my, main, my big boss, the executive producer, Molly Solomon, her husband also worked for Golf Channel, and she had recently put him in charge of on-air talent. So that means that they were working side by side, only they had to give him an SVP title so he didn't report directly to his wife. It was a very odd scenario for everybody who worked yeah. in the newsroom, the fact that this husband and wife could work that way. In fact, there is a chapter called Husband and Wife. But he was one of those... Molly isn't like this, but he's a well-known hothead. And I knew once he called me the next day about the interview and he was calling about the tweet, I knew he would lose it. I knew it. I knew that he would absolutely not be able, even with this ongoing pending investigation, he would not be able to control himself. And he lost it. And he cussed me out. And I told him, I said, Jeff, I'm not going to sit on the phone and, and let you berate me again. And I said, I'm going to hang up. And so I hung up. He tried to call me back. I was on the phone with my lawyer at this point. And Tom's like, Lisa, don't answer that. You don't have to get back on the phone with him just because he's your boss. He just touched you out. And so I let it go to voicemail. The person under him who sort of ran the, the Golf Central shows that I worked called me and said I had to call him back. And I, I said, Mark, I don't have to call him back. He just cussed me out. I don't have to get on the phone. Now, if he needs to communicate with me, He can send me a text or email, and I'll be happy to respond, or he can do so through you. And Mark said, okay, basically like he understood. Jeff tried to call me again, and again, I didn't answer. Five minutes later, Mark called me back and said that Jeff was sending me home from the tournament. So in the middle of this EEOC case, the 60-year-old white man cussed me out and said all of these things on the phone. And then he sent me home simply because he got his feelings hurt that I wouldn't answer his call from that point on. He didn't send me home because of the tweet. He didn't send me home because of the interview. He sent me home because I wouldn't answer his call. So it was ego and pride getting in the way. And then he orchestrated this whole social media campaign trying to say that everything that I put out was, you know, it wasn't vetted and it wasn't well-researched and, Here's what really happened. He made Golf Channel tweet a correction. And then the player, Janet, and the club fitter and the swing coach all saw that and basically went and put Golf Channel to task for the incorrect correction tweet. I mean, it was a social media debacle for Golf Channel and Mizuno. <laughs> they were trying to cover up this behavior, and they got called out for it. And they, I never got an apology. I never got a reason why I was sent home. It was just all, they just, again, 
they do what they do best and they just tried to make the problem go away. I had no recourse other than to send the information to the EEOC investigator. Wow. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. Our guest today is Lisa Cornwell, author of Troublemaker, a memoir of sexism, retaliation, and the fight they didn't see coming. I'm, I'm curious about, about what is human resources? What are they really for in a corporation or business? What do they do? Well, with these issues, they do absolutely nothing. And that's, <laughs> that's being, what that's, I thought. That's actually that's, – that's being nice. What they do is they handle health insurance benefits and things like that. When it comes to oh, solving okay. corporate wrongdoings, which is also falls under their umbrella, they don't do it. And, and here's why. In my experience, I can tell you this, and I think that anybody who's probably dealt with HR with, with an issue like this can relate. Everyone who works in HR Who's signing their paychecks? It's not it's not like a union where the employees are paying into this to this union to have these people protect them and prevent these sort of issues from happening. Their checks are signed by Golf Channel and NBC Universal. Who are they going to they're protecting their own jobs? Yeah. So if they if they push back too much, I mean, what kind of risk will they have? So this whole notion that HR is there to help the employees and protect the employees and create a fair and safe work environment is just a bunch of you-know-what, because it's absolutely not true. Well, doesn't that depend on the company? I mean, I think there's it, some... It does, but in, yeah. I would say that there are people who operate, you know, as long as you do it, as long as you have people in place who understand fairness, but in theory... They're still employed by the corporation, right? So there is right. a, a great risk that that these issues will not be handled. Sure, there are. I'm, I'm sure. I hope that there are more cases of people doing the right thing in terms of HR than than not. But I can tell you from my experience, it it was it was in shambles when when people tried to get help and protection. Yes, I mean, obviously NBC had a long-standing issue with that, and <laughs> so I can understand your frustration. I just, you know, I'm I'm sure there are corporations and CEOs and corporate officers that are trying to do the right thing too, because I, to be yeah. honest, I've been on the other side of this in my own business that I started. <laughs> so, um, you know. I, I, that's why I'm, I'm saying, you know, it just depends. <laughs> it just depends. Right, right. No, yeah. you're, you're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I think that these bigger corporations where you have so many different, I mean, how many people does NBC Universal employ? It, that's right. probably when, when it gets more difficult to oversee everybody and make sure that the right things are actually happening. But I yeah. 100% agree with you. There are people, there are a lot of people running companies who instruct, I'm sure there's folks to say, look, we care about, we care about treating our employees fairly. Yeah. Make sure that I mean, this is handled right. But, you know, mom, how about you in your career? Have, have you had things that, you know, you look back and think that just wasn't right? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can remember, I remember one where you had, you went back to get a certification to be able to teach sociology. Yes. Yes, and, and I taught for a year. You taught it, taught for, it a for a year, and you loved it. And then what mm -hmm. happened? And then a coach needed it. A coach needed that particular, or a coach needed something to teach, so they took it away from me. So, so I told my principal, I said, "Don't ask me to do this. Don't ask me to get another one because I'm not going to do it." And he said, "I don't blame you." Yeah. So. But, it's you know, there was yeah. no reason for them to take that away from you except they wanted to give it to a male coach. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, life goes on. <laughs> but that yeah. was, yeah, that was that was one, one instance. Yeah. Yeah. So, Lisa, I'm wondering, um, you know, as a young, how first of all, how did you get into golf in the first place? 
Um, I, I was just fortunate. My parents were, were members of a small club in my hometown, and they had a good golf junior golf program. And I, I was just one of those kids who loved it at a very early age. I loved all sports, but there was something about golf where it was an individual sport versus all the other team sports that I played where I could just work on it on my own and rely on myself. So I had a nice balance of getting to play these team sports, but also this individual sport that I sort of became addicted to. And you, I've just, I've loved it from, from a very young age. Do you think that the pressure of being kind of an elite athlete at a young age might've contributed to the developing the eating disorder? I think so. I think that some of that, but I think it was also at the time where I was really questioning my sexuality and maybe even unknowingly and having been raised in a Southern Baptist household, um, I was battling a lot of personal demons with that. I mean, I did not, I did not want to be gay. Like that was just, that was awful. Uh, you know, I, I yeah. did everything and tried everything to avoid that. I mean, it was, you know, it's amazing to me people who um, think that, I don't think that they do anymore. There's still a select group of people who think that being gay or sexuality is a choice. Um, I never would have chosen that. My life would have been so much easier had I been straight. And I've had that conversation with God, but, um, I, you know, I wouldn't change. Again, I wouldn't change anything about my life. But I think that I think that that was probably, I think real, that, that was yeah. probably what led me to the path of the eating disorder and the and the the loss of love from golf. I just think that. I was battling something so much bigger internally that I just right. couldn't handle it. I, I just right. couldn't. I needed. I needed help. And Lisa, we're we're out of time, but I did want to mention that uh, the forward to your book is written by one of my heroes, Hillary Rodham Clinton, mm-hmm. and that her husband Bill is pres- former President Clinton is your cousin, um, or your father's cousin. So your cousin once removed, and. Um, and so you write about uh, visiting the White House as a as a young adult too. So that's fun to read as well. Well, thanks. I'm very very proud of that, and obviously um, very grateful that Hillary said yes to doing it. I'll tell this quick story. I know you said we were out of time, but it was literally the last day, and I called Bill and Bill, and I talk about this in the book. He, you know, he's been such a, a mentor and advocate for me during the whole process, and I called him. At, in December at some point, I said, look, I really think, you know, this is not a golf book. I'm finished with the manuscript. I want you to read it. And I would love it if Hillary would write the foreword. So he said, okay, overnight me the manuscript. So I overnighted it to him. And it had been, you know, he's a reader. He is an avid reader. You should see their house. Like it's just (laughs) wall-to-wall books. So I knew he had read it and I hadn't heard from him for a couple weeks, maybe two and a half weeks. And the approach date was happening for the manuscript to be due. And I was literally sitting outside and I had texted him the night before asking about it, just saying, can we talk? And I hadn't heard back from him, which is very odd. He always either texts or calls back. And so I was sitting outside having a glass of wine. And I was really feeling kind of depressed about the whole issue because I thought that I kind of thought she would do it, but now it was the realization that she wasn't going to do it. Well, it's 1030. I'm about to go inside and I get a phone call and it's Bill. And he goes, she's going to do it. She said she would do it. Sorry, we've been on vacation. We're on vacation now. Send me talking points. I'll give them to her and we'll have it for you in a week. So I'm having to scramble. I I mean, it was so fantastic. I'm calling the publisher. I'm like, look, you have to put off the the print date because Hillary's going to do it. And then just lastly, a week later, they're, they're literally sitting at their dining room table writing it. Bill's giving her these talking points. She's writing it. And then he texted, you know, this is how they operate. It's just everything's on the fly. He's literally texting me screenshots of Hillary's forward. <laughs> I'm like, this is, this is like the best story ever. And the funny part is, you know, it's one of those live messages. So if you touch it, it'll, it'll actually play a short video. And you could hear Bill saying, I'm texting it to her now. <laughs> and she's in the back going, Here's another page. I mean, it's so funny. Aww. But it, it just yeah. proves that they are regular human beings, just like we all are. Just doing well, things on the fly. 
Awesome. Well, thank you, Lisa, for being with us today. Mom, do you have some closing words? Yes, actually, these were, this is something that uh, her cousin Bill Clinton told her. Being free from anger is a beautiful gift, but one that, but one that we can only give to ourselves. That's okay. very wise. <laughs> well, thank you so very much wise. for being with us today, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye-bye, everybody.